change in his life. Would that not be absolute silliness? Be silly. We tell him he was insane. He's crazy. Don't you know what you have? And should not your life change radically in accordance with what you now have? You would say to him, bro, what you have influences how you live. Now imagine that from a spiritual perspective. The last ten chapters in the book of Hebrews, we have been hearing from the author over and over again, repeated language over and over again, that there is nothing, no one in comparison to the Jesus that you have received and embraced. He is the perfect sacrifice. He is the perfect blood that cleanses you from sin. He is the great high priest over the house of God in heaven. He has given you salvation by your faith and hope and trust in it. Now imagine that radical change not leading to any substantive difference in the lives of the people that have embraced Christ. I wonder if some of us feel that tension even now in our own lives. That yes, we claim to have embraced, and yet there is this tension, this struggle in the midst of this world that we live, where, man, is there really a substantive change in my life? Because if we truly have Christ, if that means anything, surely what we have in Christ will lead to how we live in Christ, right? There will be a change in behavior, a change in how we approach God, a change in how we handle uh, circumstances on a daily basis, and a change in how we relate to one another. That's where we're transitioning today in the book. Ten chapters of this is the superior gift of Jesus in the gospel. This is the meaning of life. This is where true joy, purpose, and happiness is found. This is how you have a relationship with God. This is how you have eternal life. And then the expectation would be is that if this has such meaning, it will profoundly change their life. And that's exactly where we turn today together. Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 25, a change in the book that is now calling us to an action on the basis of Christ. Verse 19 says this, therefore brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said, amen, amen. 
This season, Christmas, is one of the most high, uh, well, highly intense uh, consumeristic seasons, right? It's buying, 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 and then January becomes paying, 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 right? You all are like, oh, shoot, January. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, but it's a season where, really, uh, we are celebrating, uh, or, or really, we're, we're, we're looking at the fact that we don't have something, right? There's something missing, right? We look at the top 10 gift lists, and we say, yeah, I don't have that. I better go get that. I need to have that. I want that. And so there's this constant focus on what we do not have. And yet we see that the focus of the passage starts with an emphasis on what we do have. And really, Christmas is best understood by celebrating what we do have, not what we don't have, correct? That, that Jesus has come into the world, and that all of his promises are for his people that has happened. And all of those blessings are those uh, for the people of God to hold on to and to have. So we're celebrating in this time, not what we don't have, but what we, uh, what we do have. And that's what he's saying. And the first thing that he's saying, and you may miss it, is that these people have an absolutely new identity. In Jesus Christ, they have a new identity. Look at who he calls them. Therefore, brothers. An all-encompassing term to talk about the siblings in the family of God. That these people were once not a people, but now they are the people of God. And that they have a Father in heaven who loves them. Loves them in Jesus Christ. And they have a, a son who is now their brother, their older brother, Jesus. Right? And now they look at one another as a family. Do you understand that, if that, that you have a family in the church of Jesus Christ? All you who have faith in him and have trusted in him, you can claim the blessing and the gift of being part of an eternal family bound to Christ. Isn't that good news? Right? This is a time, again, where families are reminded of discord and difficulty. Not, the holidays don't bring up great memories for everybody. The family can be a very anxious thing. But what we see is that in the church of Jesus Christ, all those who follow him and have faith in him belong to one another in the midst of a family. That is good news. You know, uh, you may not have noticed, but I'm an only child. Uh, I don't have siblings. But, you know, part of my testimony and what drew me to God and Christ in the gospel was that the church was a family. The church gave me brothers and sisters in the Lord. And Jeremy will tell you that he acted like my older brother all the time, beating the living snot out of me when I was in junior high, and he thought he was tough stuff in senior high, right? And, and the truth is, he could still take me. I mean, Jared could take me, right? You could, you could take me, right? I keep thinking, maybe if he's sleeping and I got a bat, I might have a chance, right? So you better watch it at night. You better sleep with one eye open, you know, because little brother's coming at you. But we... <laughs> That was so real. And that was so true. That in the church, I found a, a great extended family of brothers and sisters that were really a part, so much a part of shaping who I was. This is our identity. 
brothers and sisters. We're children of the Father, and we now are bound together in the gospel. He goes on to say that we also have confident access to God, right? Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, what he's saying is this, as Paul Ellingworth, I think, helpfully summarizes, he says, we have free access to God's inner sanctuary. Do you know that that's what Christ has secured for us by way of reminder? That there is absolutely no more obstacle to being in the presence of God. That sin has been removed. That a sufficient sacrifice has been given to God so that He now opens wide the doors and that we can approach Him acceptably. Reconciliation has taken place. And in Jesus Christ, we have confident access to God through His blood. This is something that we have in the family of God. Access to Him. And last, he goes on to say, and since we have such a great high priest over the house of God, he's saying that we have a great high priest. We have an advocate with the Father. We have someone who is interceding for us, who is serving on our behalf, who is in our heavenly home that we long for, just, just serving us and representing us and representing God perfectly. We have what we need, a mediator between us and God. This is the very thing that the author of Hebrews has been talking about chapter upon chapter, reinforcing the gospel truth that in Christ all of the blessings come to the people of God. And so I think it's a wonderful thing to just reinforce even now that we, as the family of God, have such blessing in Jesus Christ. We have it. And we spend so many of our days searching out after things that we do not have. But really, what we have is sufficient in Jesus Christ. That if you're looking, and no matter what you get and find, you still feel like there's a hole in your heart. Remember, it's this. It's because no matter where you look, you will never find joy and fulfillment apart from Jesus Christ. If you do not have Jesus, in the end, you have nothing. But if you have Jesus, you have everything. Your heart is full in ever-increasing measure. That's the blessing that we have, that we hold to as part of the family of God, as those who see Jesus for who He is and say, I believe in Him. I trust in Him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And I go to the Father through Him. Such blessing we have. You talk about Christmas. Forget the boots, Maisie. Jesus. That's what Christmas is all about. Amen? Think on that. You have blessing in Christ. But really the point that he's making here is one of repeating that. We've already kind of done that. But we see a transition that there is a reaction now that happens in the life of those who embrace that. Right? I'm no scientist okay I'm, I'm just not 
Evelyn never comes to me for help with her science homework. She goes right to mommy because she's, you know, learning this and that, and I'm, I, I, don't, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. But I did a little research, okay, on the famous scientist, Fig Newton. Oh, shoot, wait, Cam Newton. Somebody help me. See, look at you guys. You know your stuff. Isaac Newton, right? Does anybody know his first law of motion? Is that what it's called? Does anyone know his first law of motion? For every what? Action, there is an equal and opposite what? Reaction. Boom. Action, reaction. So if this action of God in Christ means anything, guess what it will cause? If it's given to us, if it's been acted upon us, guess what we should expect to see? Equal and opposite, maybe not the perfect language. But I think you get the idea that there's an action and there's a response. And it is in accordance with God's action. Okay? And so we see that literally he's telling them as he's starting this section. Now you've got to understand what he, he's saying to them. What you have is foundational to how you live. And that's really the big idea of the morning. Okay? What you have is foundational to how you live. That's what he's trying to say. And so now he's getting to the how do you live. And he tells him three things really mainly today. He says, number one, draw near. Let us draw near. Number two, let us hold fast. And number three, let us consider how to stir one another up. Action, reaction. God in Christ, perfect sacrifice, sufficient. Forgiveness of sin, reaction. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider how to stir one another up. What you have, a great high priest, free access to God, leads to drawing near, holding fast, and considering how to stir one another up. Do you see that? Good. That's basically the message for today. That there is an appropriate response. The first one he says is, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Drawing near is a word used for worship. It was used uh, back in 10.1 and previous to say, hey, when you're drawing near, you're approaching God, and oftentimes you're bringing the required sacrifices, right? You're, dr you're drawing near to God in the way that he has prescribed, in a way that gives you access to him. So what he's saying here is that if God has given you free access to himself through Christ, guess what you should appropriately do with that privilege? Draw near. Right? He's given you access, so take advantage of that. Draw near. If there's absolutely no obstacle standing in the way of you having a close connection with God in a way that it's acceptable to him, why would we not take advantage of such a privilege? Draw near to Him in full assurance of faith. We don't draw near to Him in fear, like, am I dead meat? We don't draw near to Him uh, with guilt because we know in Christ our sin has been forgiven. And so we can confidently, 
on the basis of Christ, draw near. We can literally run into the arms of God at any time because of what Jesus has done. Because our sins are covered. We've been set free from all guilt and condemnation. Nothing stands between us and the living God. So draw near to Him. What a powerful privilege. What a clear command. What an awesome responsibility, right? Really, if we've been given access to worship God, we should live a life of continual worship. I think that's what he's getting at. Right? This, the verb is active. It's, a, it, it's it be accessing, always. And that makes sense. If your access has been eternally opened, you are always seeking him. And I wonder if your Monday through Saturday is a, is a posture of constantly seeking the Lord. Or is this just a Sunday morning thing and a Wednesday night thing, if you add that to your calendar? You see, what God has done is he's opened the doors wide open for us to live a faithful life of worship. Don't mishear me. I think that corporate worship is pivotal. It's central. It's necessary, as we're about to talk about in a few verses. And I think that when the author of Hebrews is talking about worship, he's thinking about a corporate worship. But what he's saying to the individuals here is that your life should be a constant approaching of God in every attitude, in every action, every word, in every single moment of your life. That this action of God has opened the door for us to live in constant connection and adoration of God. That's how you're to respond. That every decision you make and every relationship you have, every dollar in your pocket, every business dealing, every attitude to your spouse, every word that comes out of your mouth is now subject to and empowered by the gospel. And so we draw near. We're starting a new series in January, a shorter one, taking a little break from Hebrews called Disciple. And what we're hoping to do in that series is really, once again, articulate our understanding of what a disciple is, what a faithful life of worship is. You know, for us, it's first and foremost, someone who hears and responds to the gospel, someone who has a relationship with God through Christ. And then they respond based on that action with reactions, and we call them the five outcomes. We're going to have a six-week series, one week on the gospel, and five weeks on the responses to the gospel. I encourage you to be anticipating that, especially as we start a new year. That's what this church is committed to, seeing every single one of you live a faithful life of worship, to not just come here on Sunday. Listen, there's a full crowd here today. That can get really exciting. But if, the, but if the, a great percentage of the people in this room are not living a faithful life of worship, what are we really accomplishing? And so what Christ has secured for us gives us a life of provision and worship in relationship with God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? What will your next year look like? What will your decisions look like? I would say right now, begin to think about turning away from 
a segmented spirituality where it's Sunday and Wednesday and maybe 20 minutes in the morning before work, but starting to think more holistically about every single aspect of your life and saying, Lord, based on what you have done, may every ounce of me, every day of me, every decision of me be subject to uh, just personal and corporate worship, that this is the defining thing about me. If people were to look at you, they would say, there's a worshiper of Jesus. There's someone that has taken advantage of the access that they have to God. Do you imagine the cumulative effect that this would have on our local body and our community? I couldn't imagine. I agree, kids. <laughs> I'll stop there, move on to the next one. The next thing he says is we're to hold on to our hope. Remember, the whole book of Hebrews has about, been about convincing people who uh, are, are receiving, they believe in Jesus, and now they're having pressure. Give up on Jesus. Go back to Judaism. Right? Calling into question their newfound faith. Walk away from it. Quit. Don't persevere. It's too hard. Come back to Judaism. And we live in a day and age where it's quit, give up. It doesn't matter. Be consumed with your circumstances. Do we really need to believe in Jesus only? And what he's saying to these readers is hold on. Hold on for dear life. Don't let go to your confession. To the hope of your confession. And so he says that to us today. Don't let go. Don't give up. I recognize the competing words that you hear in society. I begin to think, what are the things that motivate us to let go, to, to loosen our grip on our understanding of Christ and the gospel? What is it that causes us to let go? I think there's two main things. One, I think lies, deception, right? The, 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 uh, the father of lies comes into our life and he begins to tell us falsehood, false teaching. We hear it from culture. We, see it on, we hear it on TV, the radio, the songs, the news, right? Aren't we living in a day and age where everybody wants to talk about fake news? Well, as we engage the good news and hold fast to the good news, let us not be deceived by the fake news. And let us hold on to the confession of our hope, right? And I think the other thing that causes us to loosen our grip is circumstances, good and bad, right? We loosen our grip in life when things are going really good, don't we? Ah, look at, oh man, we had a good year. Kind of just get lackadaisical. Get casual. Everything's good, man. Everything's good. Right? Abundance and affluence can, can loosen our grip. That's what we struggle with in American Christianity. But also bad circumstances. Right? Things are going wrong. Things are difficult. They're stressful. Work, you don't understand what I'm going. I can't be worried about Jesus right now. I might get fired. I can't be, you talk about, man, I can't do that. I've got so many other things I'm worrying about in my home. We begin to loosen our grip and our focus and our attention go on temporal things so quickly. 
But he's saying, hold on to your hope. Don't let go. Don't let circumstances, good or bad, cause you to loosen your grip on your confession of Christ. And don't let the father of lies deceive you into believing fake news. Trust in the good news of the gospel. Hold on for dear life and do not let go. This is what he's saying. That if this God has taken a hold of us and he won't let go of us, amen? Why should we let go of him? The image in my mind is the image of a child running into the arms of the father who has approached the child. So imagine the father approaching, come to me, son. And the arms are extended, and the father grabs a hold of the child and brings that child to his chest and holds the child. That's what God has done in salvation. He's taken the initiative to grab a hold of you and to bring you to himself. And how do we respond to a God that holds on to us? Just like the arms of a young child that wraps their elbows right around the neck of their father. Isn't that the powerful image of what he's saying? Listen, this God has grabbed a hold of you in Christ. Grab a hold of him. Hold on to him. Don't let go of him in your confession. And last, he says this, let us consider one another. Because of what we have in Christ, let us consider one another. You know, I want to say one more thing about the faithfulness part of that. As if we didn't have enough in the beginning about since we have a high priest and since we have access to God. Now he says, hold on, for he who promised is faithful. And I just want to quickly point this out. That this could be the defining characteristic of God in many ways. I mean, he's holy, he's just, and he's, he's, um, he's merciful, and he's gracious, and he's loving. But if you look back to Exodus 34, and he tells Moses his name, he says, my name is steadfast love and faithfulness. God is faithful. No question about it. No question about it. If there's ever a song to be sung at a funeral, it's what? Great is thy faithfulness, O God. Because if you look back on your life, if you look back in the scriptures, there's one shining theme that is constantly glaring in our face that no matter what we've been through, no matter what we face, God has been faithful to us. And he says... For that reason, don't let go. Amen? And then he says, let us consider one another. And everybody was all in until we got to this point. You know, the word consider here was the same word used back in Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, there we go again. You who share in a heavenly calling... Consider Jesus. So in Hebrews 3, he's saying, consider Jesus. Hebrews 10, he's saying, now that you've considered Jesus, guess what? Consider how to stir one another. Right? If you love God, you love neighbor. 
right? There's a, there's a connection between our relationship with God, an inseparable connection, and our relationship with one another. He's saying, if you have this in Christ together, I don't think we can miss that, right? If you even just look at the repeated words of verses 19 to 25, I think it's significant to note that in those six verses, there are 14 occasions where it reinforces the community aspect, the plurality aspect of our blessings. We do not have any of these blessings or experiences in isolation from one another. Us, we, brothers, one another, 14 times. Do you think uh, the author of Hebrews is trying to reinforce a truth? I think so. We have this together. We've been saved together. We know God together. We've been forgiven together. We have hope together. And so many people are so alone and craving community. Maybe that's the place you're in today. And he's saying, listen, in the gospel, we have one another. And if we have Christ, we cannot neglect one another. He says, literally, consider how to provoke one another. Listen, my house is a constant provoking event. It's all we do. Consider, stir one another up. It just means provoke. It means instigate. It means live in such a way to get a reaction out of other people. Right? I'm like, that's my family. Right? Like, in your face. And like, you know, kind of you're sitting there drinking coffee and like, you get a little, you get a little boom to the, to the kidneys. Boom! And like, ha, gotcha, Right? What did you wanted a reaction, right? We get a lot of stuff in our house that I could go on and on here, literally. But from a positive angle, well, you can provoke people in a, in a positive way. You can get a reaction out of someone in a positive way. That is, you can treat people, you can serve them, act with them, talk to them in a way that is instigating a reaction of love and good deeds. The very opposite. Most of the time, provoking is you want to tick somebody off. You want to get under their skin. Right? He's saying, yeah, consider one another, but how to stir them up, how to instigate them to love and good deeds. I think we do that with our actions, our time, it's even saying here, our presence, right? He talks about the two most influential things. Presence, don't neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some. Or in many ways, today, is in the habit of most in evangelical Christianity in America. Don't give up meeting together. It's important. Presence is influential. To be present in someone's life regularly, consistently, has major influence on someone's soul. It influences whether or not they hold on or let go. It influences whether or not they're drawing near to God in worship. That when you consider one another, how to stir one another up, and you do that by what? By not neglecting, neglecting to meet together, but being together. Presence. I remember we used to hang out with a couple other pastor friends for vacation, and I was kind of like on vacation, like, we got to do something. What do you guys want to do? Want to go, go here? Want to go there? Want to go pool? Want to shoot pool? What do you want to do? Let's go. What are we sitting around for? Let's go do something. On vacation, I just like to stay active. 
And they would look at me like, dude, presents. Presents. I'm like, presents? Where are they? We got presents? Where, where are we getting the presents? It's like, no, no, no. It ministers to one another. Just be. Just be together. Our presence is influential. But not just a silent presence, right? He goes on to say, exhort one another. Encourage one another. The same word back in Hebrews 3.18. Exhort one another. Short, uh, put in a, in a short form, tell each other the gospel constantly. So be together and tell each other the gospel constantly. That's really what he's calling us to do. To not neglect being together. Because being together and telling one another the truth about Jesus is influential in our walk with God. And if we pull the plug on those things, if we're no longer telling each other the gospel, and we're no longer spending time together in biblical community, what we're literally doing is cutting ourselves off from a grace given by God to sustain our faith in this life as we wait for the next. And actually, we're, we're cutting ourselves off from the very community that we are spending the rest of eternity with. He says, you should do this all the more as you see the day approaching. You see that? Don't miss that last phrase. You should do this all the more as you see the day approaching. What you have <coughs> should influence how you live. And you should live this way all the more as you see the day approaching. What day is he talking about? The day of the Lord, the return of Christ. That there should be a sense of urgency about our presence, a sense of urgency about our proclamation to one another. We should be doing it more and with greater purpose and passion, not less, because Jesus is returning. How much does the day of the Lord, the return of God, influence your everyday decision-making? How does it impact your relationships and the investments you make? He's saying, do this all the more as you see the day approaching. That being together and teaching one another and encouraging one another in our walk with God is absolutely necessary and good all the more. There should be an urgency to it, not a, eh, whatever, I'm good. I think one of the biggest traps we fall into with biblical community is thinking that it's all about us. If we're doing fine, if we don't need anything, then we'll step back. But you got to understand that what we do at Missional Community, what we do here, is not primarily about you, about your individual needs and walk with God. It's about the collective community. And when you don't show, when you aren't participating, it is influencing people's walk with God. And when you do show, it influences people's walk with God. And you may not necessarily see it or know it or feel it in the moment. But you, again, the collective cumulative effect of years together telling each other the gospel, who can quantify what God would do with that? But we need to have a passion and urgency about this, all the more as we see the day of the Lord drawing near.
What we have is the foundation for how we live. And listen, if you do not have Jesus, please, our cry and plea to you is that you hear about who he is, that you embrace him in all that he has done, and you receive him and become a child of God. If you have not placed your faith and hope in Christ, do so today. Receive those blessings by faith. And He will do for you. In many ways, what we see with that guy who won the lottery. right? He will give you all that is His. And it will radically transform your life and the next. You don't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't accomplish it. But you can receive life. He who has the Son has life. Amen? John wrote that you may have life. Jesus came that you may have life and have it to the full. If you have Jesus, you have life. If you do not have life, give it to Jesus and receive it from his hand. Because what we have is the foundation for how we live. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. This all comes from your hand, Lord. You have acted powerfully in Christ. Lord, we confess weakness, even now that so often we feel like we can't do it. And there's such a truth to that. We can't conjure up and manufacture holiness and godliness, and, and yet it's your gospel and your spirit, your very word, and your people that empower it in our lives. And I pray today that in our moment of weakness, as we hear this call, that you would strengthen us. Strengthen us in soul and spirit, and quicken us to be faithful in living our life of worship toward you. We ask this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.